go ahead and shop, get to the checkout counter, your attention is diverted, and you honestly forget that the water's under there. Honest mistake. You pay for everything, no one notices, somehow you get through that, those two little thingies that go beep, 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 you know, you get through there, and you get outside, you unload your groceries, and you look down and you see the water, and you go, oh my goodness, I forgot to pay. What I tell students is, there is no ethical dilemma here. There's a clear right and wrong. Whether you want to accept it or not, that, that's neither here nor there. The clear thing to do is to take the water back in and pay for it because you know you didn't do it. Okay? There is no ethical dilemma there. Welcome to Breaking Silos. Who you just heard was Dr. William McCoy from the Rutland Institute of Ethics, who he's a director of. And we had great conversations about ethics uh, and how it applies to the graduate school experience and how can one apply to our, our lives using the, the STAR method. So I really hope that you enjoy this conversation as much as we did. Welcome to another episode of Breaking Silos. And in today's episode, we have another special guest. He is Dr. William McCoy. He is the director of the Rutland Institute of, for Ethics. He is originally from Illinois. So he's from the north here in Clemson, South Carolina. And he got his bachelor's degree in English. Um, his master's degree was in education and uh, vocational education, which was from the University of Wisconsin-Madison. And he is truly interdisciplinary in nature in his own training. And he got his doctorate in educational leadership from Edgewood College. After that, um, and, and overall, Dr. McCoy has had many experiences in the field of education. He's worked as a director for career services at Globe University before he joined the Belief Program at uh, Northern Illinois University's Business College. He's also served as the full-time director of the College of Business in the Belief Program from the year 2010 to 2018. In 2018, he joined um, Clemson as the director for the Rutland Institute for Ethics. And in 2019, he was also appointed the interim director of the Pan-African Studies Program in Clemson. And uh, and yeah, he's truly, I've, I met him very recently for, during um, an ethics workshop that he led. And it was, I ended up, ended up winning something actually. You did. Um, <laughs> well, you I think I owe you a prize. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, yeah. I wasn't there, was it? You were the most ethical person. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, we were given a, a case study and, um, and we had to present uh, something on it. And of course, we talked about something called as a star decision-making model, which I highly recommend everybody gets to know in their graduate uh, training. So it was basically applying that. So we were in a, a team of four people and uh, we presented something and uh, got an email a few days ago that I won a $25 Amazon gift card. So I guess I'll ask you about that. When, you, when, you, when you drop by my office, it's sitting there waiting awesome. on you. Yeah, I don't know what to get from it, but I'm still find something out. But, That's but, cool. But yeah, welcome, cool. welcome to the show. And, Thank you. And we like to begin by uh, something funny or something, you know, just, just for fun, um, just to get the creative ideas flowing. Um, so Arif, you, I've seen in one of your interviews, you said that you love traveling and, uh, and some of the stories that you've described, it, it's pretty clear that you have traveled. Of course, you're from the North, in the South now. So what's the weirdest food that you've ever eaten 
in because we asked our previous guest what's the best food that they've eaten so i guess we should ask you what's the weirdest the food weirdest <laughs> um actually i don't steer off the beaten path too much okay. um uh i'm not a picky eater but i suppose there are some some things that i just will not okay. uh, go to um i'm not a much much of an exotic eater okay but that being said my first trip out of the country was to Rome, Italy. Oh, wow. Mm. And in Rome, which is where I thought I was going to get um, the best pizza in the world. Oh, <laughs> I was um, <laughs> I actually, I had pizza, uh, and this was weird to me. Um, where I had pizza, it had an egg baked right in the center of it. Yeah. What? So I, you know, what I learned through the process is that I am truly Americanized. Yeah. <laughs> and so if it doesn't look like what Americans eat, then I'm probably not going to yeah, eat so it too bad. quickly. Yeah. But the, the pizza was good, It was and it was authentic, but I just wasn't used to an egg being yeah. in the middle of it. But it was good. Yeah, apparently there's a place in uh, somewhere in Greenville that has chocolate chip pizza. I'm not making this up. Ooh. So those things also exist. And of course, there's always this <laughs> debate of pineapple and pizza or not. So, yes. Yeah, I, w- I work with some Italians. And when you mention chicken on pizza, they just get, they get mad. Oh, yeah. 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 Yeah, they that's, that's funny. I, I lost weight on that trip. Because I, <laughs> I wouldn't eat a lot of things. I, I Believe it or not, I ate more... Um, Chinese food <laughs> in Rome. In, in Rome, uh, um, really? yeah, yeah. Uh, I ate more Chinese food than I normally would because that looked—I knew what it was and I knew what it looked like. So that's what I ate. Interesting. So prover- I, proverbially speaking, you did not do what Romans should do in Rome. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and the other little difference over there was that um, they—they're big bread eaters mm-hmm. and. Um, so, you know, that old, uh, I think it's Claire Ward who said, you know, where's the beef uh, way back in probably before your time. Um, so I kept wondering, where's the meat at? And yeah. all, of this, all this bread. I see all the bread, but where's the meat? Where's the meat? <laughs> Interesting. Yeah, I've never been there, but I'm sure I'll have the same, same conclusions. Uh, but that's awesome. Yeah. I guess we can just dive right into it. And, and, and like, like we just described that, that Dr. McCoy has such a diverse academic background in English, in education, and even leadership. Um, so we want to begin asking you about your initial years at Clemson, especially as, as the interim director of the, the Pan-African um, Studies, which is, um, you know, as, as it, the program described, it's an interdisciplinary degree program that explores social, economic, and political contributions that people of African descent have made to global society and examines diverse cultures around the world. So uh, I think I'll let Scott take question Yeah, one. so uh, I guess the first question we wanted to ask is, what are some of the challenges that you faced uh, as a leader of this uh, Pan-African Studies program? Uh, especially as you try to make it more interdisciplinary in nature? Sure. Um, there were a couple things uh, that I, I encountered during my time as interim director. First of all, let me just say, just so that everyone is clear, um, we have changed the name of the program from Pan-African Studies to Global Black Studies. Mm-hmm. And in actuality, um, that was one uh, of my challenges, um, because 
when you say Pan-African, the common person, you know, Joe Schmo from Kokomo who walks around campus, if you say Pan-African, they will not be able to tell you what that means. Mm. They know what African means. They don't always know what the pan part means. Mm. And so um, one of the first things I did was to visit with all of the affiliated faculty associated with the program who were teaching in the program. Mm -hmm. and, um, and I just asked a very simple question. Should we continue to be named Pan-African Studies or should we change our name to something mm -hmm. that when people hear it, they won't scratch their head wondering what it actually means. And so most of the faculty um, that I met with agreed that we needed to probably change the name to make it more palatable to people who were not um, entrenched in um, Africana studies and things of that nature. Mm -hmm. So that actually was one of the first challenges that I had, um, really looking at the name and trying to see if, if that was a name that we needed to continue with. Um, a couple of other things that I found a little bit challenging, um, but we were able to overcome it. One was legitimacy. Mm. And when I say legitimacy, I mean that my degree, and you read all of my degrees, none of them are in Africana studies. Yeah. Uh, I did minor in history mm. when I was working on my undergrad. So I majored in English, right. minored in history. Mm. And I did take a few African-American courses, mm. Afrocentric courses, but I didn't major in that area. Mm. And so... Um, there were some people who um, always did have some issues with the fact that the person who was running the program really did not have an academic background in the program. Mm -hmm. um, so that was a little bit of a challenge. Uh, another challenge was, and, and continues to be, that um, the program really needs and needed at that time and yet continues a need to grow. Mm -hmm. And that was made very plain by the provost. Um, so I'm not sharing anything that's not public knowledge. The mm -hmm. provost let us know, along with several other programs, that basically if you do not grow, we, we will have to re-examine whether or not we need it as a major. Mm -hmm. We would never get rid of uh, African-American studies or Pan-African studies or global black studies. We would never get rid of it completely um, mm. on our campus. But whether it's a major or a minor makes a big difference uh, here on campus. And so one of the things that I began to focus on that I recognized quickly was a challenge that we really needed to grow the number of majors, mm. not just people interested in it, but we needed majors. And so I, I um, put together a strategic plan uh, I believe it was a five-year strategic plan um, that we began to put in place. But unfortunately, uh, the pandemic <laughs> popped up right around the time that yeah. we were getting oh, ready man. to do it. And so um, the good news is that we have an excellent um, director now because I held the, uh, the position for two years. 
and uh, Dr. Kaifa Rowland is now the director. She's excellent. Um, she and I are, are friends, and everything that I had when they hired her, I just like plopped it in her lap and said, here you go. I'm here to help you in whatever way that I can to make it happen. So I mm -hmm. know that she is yet working on programmatic growth. And then the very last part to answer that question about challenges was that I, I wanted to bring more structure to um, some of the foundations of the program. For instance, little things like having regular meetings with faculty, mm -hmm. affiliated faculty, um, really looking more closely at programs that we could all agree to do, um, getting buy-in. It's really important for us to have, and, and this is for anyone, any, even one of your listeners, um, that when you're in a professional position, it is extremely important for you to get buy-in from your stakeholders. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And for them to agree, this, this is not a you know, um, dictatorship, so you know, just because I'm the director, and I'm not saying anyone did that, I'm, mm -hmm. I'm just saying that um, it's important when you're dealing with, with professionals that you bring them to the table, you hear them out, get their ideas, and then formulate something that everyone can agree with. And those yeah. are some of That's the things good. that I began to um, work um, on with Pan-African Studies as it was named at that time. Oh, that's that's pretty cool. I I can definitely agree the, <laughs> that getting the stakeholders involved is 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 pretty crucial. And for those who don't know, so I I invited Dr. McCoy um, and I was in his office and I was like, can we meet him? Maybe have you on the podcast? And and I went just for that. And he gave me the most detailed description of how to launch a student organization and how to achieve the goals that we at the podcast are trying to achieve. So I. I can definitely see all the things that he's mentioning and even like starting a major because in the College of Science, we're trying to start or are in the process of starting a neuroscience major. And it is, you have to go really up the, the chain to like the Board of Education in the state. So it's all the things they're describing requires a lot of, a lot of behind the scenes work. So it's, it's not only nice. that, but it requires a lot of patience. Absolutely. Um, the, yes. the change from Pan-African studies to global black studies started with me. Mm. It didn't end until Dr. Roland took it over. And so what, what kind of, what timeline is that? Are you saying, uh, year one? Three years. Just to change the name. It took three years. Wow. wow. And if you think about it, if you're a student, you're here for four, maybe five yeah. years. So if you come in freshman year, you didn't see that until, mm. you know, your junior or senior year. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. It, patience is uh, as a part virtue. Of, yeah. As part of this, you know, science student advisory board, we've definitely learned you want to start any initiative. Yeah. It's like, oh, you got to be ready to wait it out for, you know, Absolutely. months, if not years. So, yeah. wow. Absolutely. It, it takes a lot of patience and a lot of uh uh, stick to itiveness to make sure that it just, you know, just keep pounding away. And, and sometimes you just can chip away. You you may not even be the recipient of what you're trying to do, That's so but you're doing it for the future. And so yeah. you may do a little. Someone coming after you may do a little, um, so on and so forth. Yeah, well, that's, that's a great journey, of course. And I think because you've described your experience kind of working in, in something that you were, did not have experience in, uh, but but you still like you know made things happen, which is great. Uh, but the question I want to ask you is like, what's what do you think is the current kind of climate for um, 
because in the sciences, at least in the life sciences, because I'm a biology kind of person. So, you know, for us, um, interdisciplinary research studies, um, insofar as it are re our own research topics are concerned, how what kind of methods and approaches we employ, um, is something. It's it's a conversation that's really picking up. Um, so so I I wonder what uh, what does the climate look like in in just like the arts humanities and and just the social sciences because I think you have background in in in, more, and in education for that matter so so what do you think is like the current climate for for that and and um, what are some areas that such fields need to expand their focus into it looks like from the outside to at least us that it's very limited in its scope and, and, and there's not enough interdisciplinary exposure for, for the students who are there, which kind of ties into your idea of expanding the major and all that. So yeah, can you sure. talk about that? Sure. Um, first of all, to answer the first part of your question, um, you need to understand that many people are beginning to understand the importance of interconnectedness. Mm -hmm. And that occurs within majors and outside of majors and interdisciplinary ways. Mm -hmm. um, science is, you know, the College of Science is now understanding how uh, necessary it may be to work with the College of Education. Um, yeah. The uh, uh, College of uh, Business is, is beginning to understand more and more how important it may be to work with um, humanities or, or something of that nature. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, when I was at Northern Illinois University, uh, one of my first exposures to really working interdiscipline in an interdisciplinary nature was working with, um, well, I, I was in the College of Business, but I was teaching a beginning business course. Mm -hmm. However, we were working in what we called a themed learning community, which is kind of um, popular in, in college colleges now and universities. Is it like case study based learning or team based learning? No, it was. Uh, so let me let me set the scenario for you. So I would teach and I had freshmen. Mm -hmm. So I would teach um, the first 75 minutes, let's just say hypothetically, uh, that we uh, would meet on two uh, Mondays and Wednesdays. Mm -hmm. The structure at NIU was different than here, so we really didn't do very many 50-minute classes, okay. at least in my area. Everything was 75 minutes. So if we met Monday and Wednesdays from, say, 9.30 until 11 was my time to teach this group of students, usually about 25, um, the big beginning business, freshmen. Hmm. Right after me was the speech instructor, comms instructor. Hmm. So the same students would stay right there in class, hmm. and the comms instructor would instruct right after I would from 11 to 12.30. What we would do, we as in the instructors, we would meet before the class ever met to decide which of our assignments were going to be interconnected. Mm, interesting. I like and that. I actually sat in on his teaching 
and he sat in on my teaching. And he, we, would, we would actually engage during the other person's course as time would allow and where it was profitable for us to do it. So um, the students were getting almost a two for one. Uh, we, had, we, we even had similar grading. We came up with a similar grading um, uh, opportunities. But there were at least two assignments that were applicable to both classes. And then the students who were the same for two exact classes, the same students but two different instructors, but they got a chance to see the instructors interact with each other. Mm -hmm. And so that is the kind of spirit that I am accustomed to because it really, really worked well. Um, and I really decided to bring that interconnectedness here. Um, I think we already have a lot of it existing. Um, I just wanted to enhance where I could. Um, if you look at my programming, and this kind of goes into the second part of your, your question, what are some areas that such fields need to expand their focus in? Um, as the director of the Rutland Institute for Ethics, I realize that I cannot do things in a vacuum. I cannot make decisions without the support of administration and the deans. Mm. So one of the first things I did was create uh, what we call the FACE group. Mm. FACE stands for Faculty Advocating for the Commitment to Ethics. Mm. So I have a group of faculty that meet once a month that represent every single one of the seven academic colleges. So that I know when I'm talking about something or when we're discussing something, mm. that every single one of them has the interest of their college on their mind when we're discussing. For sure. And uh, again, back to the buy-in, making sure that you know everyone's on board Absolutely. with yeah. the decisions that we're making. And um, so that, again, kind of demonstrates that interconnectedness. Yeah, yeah. I did the exact same thing with the student group. So the change student group that is affiliated with the Rutland Institute for Ethics is designed to have at least one or more students from every academic college. Mm -hmm. And now, which is why you are involved, um, we're now beginning to make inroads into grad school. Mm -hmm. And that's a new phenomenon for us because we've been concentrating on undergrad. Yeah. Um, let me give you two examples, one of which I, uh, I think will excite you a little bit, sure. <laughs> and your listeners certainly. Um, we invited, our, our, we, we formulated uh, annual ethics day. That was one of the first mm -hmm. things I instituted when I got here to Clemson. Annual Ethics Day allows us an opportunity to bring a speaker that we think a lot of people would want to hear and has something to offer, Okay. knowledge-wise. The very second speaker that we had, because the first one was Joan Dubinsky, mm -hmm. the very second speaker, and let me, for your listeners, let me just say Joan Dubinsky is the retired, um, former director, but now retired, of the uh, Office of Ethics for the United Nations. She was our very first annual Ethics Day speaker. That's awesome. But our second one was the largest 
female uh, restaurateur in America and probably in the world. Wow. And that would that was Valerie Daniels Carter. Hmm. She's from Milwaukee. Wow. And I know her personally. Oh wow. So it was easy, somewhat easy to get her. Um, I had to get, flip around the, the schedule with her, but. Um, but here's the interconnectedness. When I brought her, it was a merger of three different departments that got her here. My department, Rutland Institute for Ethics, the Division of Equity and Inclusion on campus, and also College of Business. So we worked in tandem with each other to get her here. And she spent time on here. And you can actually go back on our website and look at her address. Um, uh, she did an absolutely fantastic job. Um, but that's just one opportunity where we're working interconnectedly with each other. The other one that I think may uh, somewhat excite you, it does mean, uh, our, let's see, Valerie was our third, or our second. So our third um, annual Ethics Day speaker was the Surgeon General, Jerome Adams, mm -hmm. Surgeon General under President Trump. Um, it was the middle of the pandemic, so he couldn't physically come, so he did um, do it virtually, right. which was wonderful. He did an excellent job. When bringing him in, we partnered with the College of Behavioral, Social, and Health Science. Mm -hmm. Okay? Mm -hmm. um, I am now trying to get him to commit to being our fellow. Oh, cool. Where he would be able to come, where he would be expected to come on campus twice a year mm -hmm. and speak to students, faculty, and staff. That's cool. You know, so I, I, it's fresh on my mind because I just literally was on the phone today with his administrative assistant talking about it and nice. trying to work out some details. He hasn't committed yet, mm -hmm. but I'm hoping that he does because that would be a wonderful opportunity. Absolutely. Again, the Rutland Institute for Ethics working with mm -hmm. other entities on campus. Love to see it. Yeah. The last example that I'll give you is, um, and just going back to Pan-African Studies, Global Black Studies, um, look at, they are now in the process of looking at bringing instructors in because number one, um, an interdisciplinary studies department is being formed. Oh, love it. Now, we, before it was just a interdisciplinary program mm -hmm. that was, that consisted of a couple of places, um, Pan-African Studies was on it. World Cinema and women, women's studies or women in leadership, okay? Those were the core. And, and I think we had one graduate level uh, RCIT okay. that was a part of it, which is comms. Mm -hmm. um, but now the new director, Dr. Rowland, is looking at ways to undergird as they are now forming and formulating and developing a department of interdisciplinary studies. She's even interviewing instructors that are coming in from, that have a dual background, both maybe in English mm. and black studies. 
performing arts and black studies, oh. history and black studies, so that the person can do more than just teach on one thing, mm. um, English and black studies. So it's, it's really more and more schools and universities are beginning to understand the importance of involving more stakeholders than just the ones that I see in my department. How cool. That's neat. And yeah. what are the scientists that like? Yeah. <laughs> that's a cool concept of yeah. just having like faculty having expertise in, in different areas. That's that's a neat concept. Yeah. Well, you know, and, and, and don't count science out because um, every year when I'm when I start looking at speakers for a, uh, annual ethics day. I've purposely been looking around campus and, and going to certain colleges to appeal to certain colleges. Mm -hmm. Going back to what I said before, um, Joan Dubinsky would have been more of an appeal because of her general background, would have been an appeal to humanities. For sure. Uh, Valerie Daniels Carter would have been an, an, uh, an appeal to business. Mm -hmm. Uh, Jerome Adams would have been an appeal to health and behavioral sciences. So every year I try to kind of rotate and go to different colleges and get a speaker that I think more than just a college would be interested in, but certainly the college would That's be. Yeah. So guess who the aim and the focus is this coming year? I want to say it's the College of Science. It is. Nice. <laughs> it is. I've already been in contact with um, Dean Young. Awesome. Uh, she is all, She and I have already discussed potential speakers mm -hmm. um, to come in. I'm working on my end, because I'm the one who has to search them out, working on my end to make sure that we get a speaker in here that would have a wide enough appeal mm -hmm. to uh, the college and to the university if you will um to to bring that speaker in so that that's our focus coming yeah. in and again college of science working with the rutland institute for ethics that's working hand in hand I love that. well yeah i'm i'm really looking forward to, to seeing that happen that'd be that'd be exciting uh and so i'm what i'm curious about is that you uh, if i remember correctly you majored in english minored in history got a master's in education and now you're leading an institute for ethics. And so how did your career path lead you into the field of ethics? Could you, can you still relate your, your history minor to what you do now in terms of your ethical field? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. So, yeah, I'd be, I'd be interested to hear you know, how you, know, you got to where you are with, uh, with being in charge of ethics. Oh, wow. Um, I'm not even sure that there's a really, really good pathway that, that, that happened um, through. But I can tell you this. I have worked, and both of you have seen my um, my, my resume, my uh, curriculum vitae, and you may have noticed that I have worked in three distinct fields. Mm -hmm. I've worked in business, I've worked in higher education, and I've worked in nonprofit. Mm -hmm. And in all of those areas, what I have come to understand and appreciate is good decision making. Hmm. Um, now, in all honesty and transparency, part of um, my background is as a minister. 
So um, when I was being considered at Northern Illinois University for the director role uh, for the BELIEF program, BELIEF stands for Building Ethical Leaders Using an Integrated Ethics Framework. And that was the premier college uh, of business program. It was the only program like it on, on campus at the time. When they were considering me, the question was posed to me in the middle of the interview, are you going to be able to discern the difference between your ecumenical hat or the religious side of yourself, mm -hmm. and then the you know university, public university, you can't come here proselytizing, so on and so forth. Yeah. Can, you, can you tell the difference between those two? Yeah. And I'm like, look, I've been in higher education, I've been in business, I've been in nonprofit. If anyone knows the difference between those three, mm -hmm. uh, I, I know the it's difference. You. Yeah, it's you. And uh, so I think that was how I just kind of naturally matriculated into it. Mm -hmm. Um, my, my background as a minister and then being able to be, um, as, as even and honest and fair as I can possibly be, yeah. sometimes almost to a fault. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, I can, I can definitely see that those are some things, I mean, especially after going through that, that workshop that, um, <laughs> Uh, we'll talk about those tests in, in just a second, but yeah, I, I definitely found myself thinking about some of the tests and I'm like, oh, what, what would I do here? So yeah, I mean, for a person to just do life, you know, you just come across decisions and, and then they require some, some thinking, critical thinking. Uh, and actually that's a good segue into my next question. Before you, before you go there, sure. um, there's one other point that I want to make that probably enhanced my ability to go into this area. Mm -hmm. Okay. And that is my programming ability. Hmm. And actually, that's was probably my primary strength for being the interim director of Pan-African Studies, hmm. because I'm the person who, you know, some people are really weirded out by a job that does not exist hmm. and building it from the ground up. Hmm. You know, walk in, there's nothing here, no one to tell me what to do, and the boss says, you build it and they will come. Mm. And you ask, what do I build? And they say, that's up to you. <laughs> that would weird a lot of people out. Yeah. I actually get adrenaline rushes <laughs> when you tell, and don't tell me something can't be done because okay. I'm the one who will sit there all day and all night trying to figure out how to make it happen. Not so much to prove you wrong, but to, but to show that it can be done mm. if you put enough thought into it and you get the right people around the table for sure so um that was another air reason that i think it became kind of natural for me mm. to to be in those areas because by nature i'm a programmer i i like putting programs together i like appealing to people to come to programs mm. i like marketing i like making sure that the curriculum is tight making you know doing assessments so that we can always make it better mm. that's what i do and i do it pretty darn well <laughs> that's, a, that's a great life school for sure um i mean and of course you've done a lot of stuff in rutland institute of ethics and I think we'll be, I'll be remiss if I don't ask you about what is what is the meaning of ethics and, and what do you think constitutes an, an ethical problem? Because I think all of us 
come across this, especially uh, in graduate school a lot of times. So, so can you like describe what is the meaning of ethics and, and, and what's, what's an ethical problem? Sure. Um, ethics deals with the right and wrong mm. and the good and bad. Um, it is more than anything set mostly by cultural or community type standards, um, what is acceptable. So, you know, when I go into the classroom, especially in, we're invited every semester to talk to freshmen and transfer uh, business students. Mm -hmm. So what I tell students is, a lot of what you think is an ethical dilemma is not necessarily an ethical dilemma. And let me give you a good example. So I'm going to give you two examples. You go to Walmart, which I was just there last night, <laughs> okay. um, doing my grocery shopping. Um, you go to Walmart, you do a couple weeks or a month worth of grocery shopping. Um, you get a case of water, no room in the basket, so you slide it under. You go ahead and shop, get to the checkout counter. Your attention is diverted, and you honestly forget that the water's under there. Mm -hmm. Honest mistake. You pay for everything. No one notices. Somehow you get through that. Those two little thingies that go beep, 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 beep. <laughs> you know, you get through there, and you get outside. You unload your groceries, and you look down, and you see the water. Mm -hmm. And you go, oh, my goodness, I forgot to pay. What I tell students is there is no ethical dilemma here. There's a clear right and wrong. Whether you want to accept it or not, that, that's neither here nor there. The clear thing to do is to take the water back in and pay for it because you know you didn't do it. Okay? Mm -hmm. There is no ethical dilemma there. Okay? Oh, I see. I, so it's not that there, people don't know that there's an ethical dilemma. It's that it's, there isn't even one because you know what you yeah, need to right, do. Right. Yeah. There's a clear right and a clear wrong oh, here. Okay, you know, okay. Dilemmas exist in gray areas. I say it's one of those you're damned if you do, damned if you don't situations. Mm -hmm. So let me give you the, accept, the, the, the second ex example. And this for my freshman students, usually um, they will put up a fight about, but it's, there's a clear right and wrong here. You and your roommate have the exact same class, exact same days, but two hour, uh, one hour apart from each other. So you have the professor first, and then your roommate comes in for the next hour, mm -hmm. same class, same professor. So you know what happens when you, you get in there one day and the professor says, pop quiz, put everything away. And you take a pop quiz. On your way out of the class, you know what's going to happen. Your roommate is standing there, and what is your roommate going to say? What did you do in class today? What did you do in class today? What did you do okay? in class today? And then, now, it, you, it is clear. There is no right or there is no, no, no ambiguity here. There, there, there is no question here. The right thing to do is not to tell them. Because you're giving them an advantage that nobody else has. You didn't even get that advantage. So the right thing to do is not tell them. Now, you can figure out a creative way not to tell them. 
But the right thing to do is not to give them a heads up about things that you didn't even get that advantage, and you're giving them advantage over everybody else. Now, you know my freshman students, they absolutely do not like to hear me say that. Yeah. And some grown people don't even like to hear me say it. But it is what it is. I'm going to stand firm and stand hard on that. There's a clear right and wrong. Now, you want to say something? Yeah, I was going to say what I do like, uh, how you phrase that, though, is that you can find a creative way to not tell them is very different than saying you'll have to lie about it and say that you didn't have a pop quiz or anything. I really liked that you, you said, because it's true that a lot of people think that there are situations where it's like, oh, I'll have to lie. I'll have to defend what most people say is like a, a moral wrong. And, uh, but instead it's like, no, you actually have the freedom to choose, you know, to not do something in this manner. So I, 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 exactly. I, I wanted to say that. I really like that. I really like that. Exactly. Uh, uh, and and you, you talked about morality and morals are personal. They, they tend to come from um, uh, uh, philosophy or, you know, kind of the basis of religions or where you may have gotten that from. Mm. But there are clear, don't, I tell people, don't confuse clear right and clear wrong with, I just don't want to do that. So it must be a dilemma. That's not a dilemma. Mm. A dilemma, an ethical dilemma, is one where you really, if, if you go right, going right and going left almost look the same. Mm. You know, the, the famous uh, trolley. Uh, uh, I was thinking this whole time, I was like, if we have some time, we should ask you this, uh, yeah, this yeah, trolley the, problem. That's the famous one. You know, you got a trolley. Uh, if the trolley uh, go, you have the ability to, to divert uh, and send it in a particular pathway. Um, do you send it... Um, one way that's going to uh, kill a whole bunch of people, or do you send it to another direction where it may only kill two or three, but those two or three are your relatives? Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, a burning building, you know, you got two burning buildings, you're the firefighter, one burning building has, you know, three people hanging out the window, the other one has 50, um, but if the one with the three, you're all related to them. And, you know, mm -hmm. how, how do you decide which one you know um i love i'm a, I'm a trekkie okay I'm okay an old trekkie i like uh one of my favorite movies is uh star trek the wrath of khan which is the second one in the fantastic series. and i love that movie and and i the line that i love the most or one of the lines i love the most is when spock says the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few or the one and so we have to really think about uh, dilemmas because many times there is no clear right answer. There's an answer, but it's not clear which one is right or wrong. And sometimes there really is, depending on the cultural situation, depending on what's going on, there may not be a clear right and wrong. You just have to take the best idea you can mm -hmm. and work it out. Interesting. Yeah, I think you got, I've already got into that morals question, so... But, but that's that's super helpful to to understand and, and I think when, when we do come across um, when there's you know not there's like more gray area and, and as graduate students that that happens a lot like you know think about publishing something or you know falsifying or fabricating data or or just even like research integrity or if you see somebody you know lying about their data I mean 
thinking about like a, a biologist or what, what you would encounter in a lab or, or, or the process. And even like as a physicist, a scholar, a physicist here, um, what like, is there a framework that somebody can use? Otherwise, this can lead to mental gymnastics that can never end and, can, <laughs> and drive somebody crazy. So, so like, what, 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 what do you have for us that we can kind of em employ and, and use? And of course, it's sometimes it, it's just like hard to think about. Oh, maybe I should do this, and we should do that. But but yeah, I think I think you have a nice framework for us that we'd love to hear about. And of course, hopefully, the listener would also benefit from it. Sure, sure. Um, one of the things that the faculty group came up with, again going back to the need to have an invested and collaborative group that represents every college, the faculty group came up with the star decision-making model. That was their baby, okay? Okay. And the star decision-making model, by the way, I will say anyone on campus listening, if you wanted a copy of the card, all you'd ever have to do is either email me or just drop by my office. I will always have cards for any <laughs> student that ever wants one. The star decision-making model uh, represents, star means uh, stop to test and to act and to reflect. Mm. So when you are uh, stopping specifically, and you can find this information on the card, when you're stopping, you are recognizing the ethical problem, you're identifying who's involved, who are mm. the stakeholders, and you're also developing at least three solutions. Mm. Mm. So for instance, um, the, uh, okay, let me give you an example of something here. Um, I, this is true, um, I was taking a motorcycle riding class, and by the way, I passed, okay? <laughs> it was a little difficult. There was me. no doubt, there was no doubt. Well, there was for a while, but that's a whole other story. But anyway, um, this was a couple of years ago, and, and I um, was in the class, and we were on the last day, of course, it's a weekend class, so it was Sunday, and we were taking our written test. The instructor had some paperwork to get copied, and he left the room. Mm -hmm. There were about eight of us in the class. And um, when he walked out, I was sitting next to a mother and her son who were taking the class together. Mm -hmm. Mom was having trouble answering some of the questions. And she leaned over to her son <laughs> and asked him to give her a couple of answers. No one in the class had to say anything. Mm. Um, when the instructor came back, he never knew anything. So when you go through this decision-making model, mm. you can think about a situation like that. For instance, recognizing the ethical mm. problem. Um, now, although there is a clear, there's a clear right and wrong here, but how do I deal with it? Mm. I'm not the one who cheated, but how do I deal with Absolutely. what I knew was cheating? Mm. Uh, recognizing the problem, so I recognized that cheating had occurred. Um, identifying the stakeholders, so you start, you know, the people in the class, myself, the instructor. Uh, develop at least three solutions to the problem. Well, one solution you can always do is do nothing. Mm. Um, so I could do nothing. I could talk to the mom and son and try and convince them to um, 
turn themselves in, or I could just talk to them. Now, you can come up with more solutions, but the, the model says come up with at least three. And I'm curious, is uh, was three chosen because it it forces you to maybe get creative in certain situations yes. and, and not just cop out and say, oh, well, I, I could just not do anything. Right? And, you know, and I actually, I wouldn't even say creative. I would say um, it, it's more about um, being more comprehensive. I see. Uh, and, and really thinking your solutions mm-hmm. through. I see. Really, really giving it some thought. Again, back to your point, though, that oh, I'm just not going to do anything and keep going, you mm-hmm. know. Um, the, the, te- the test that you would put it through the lens of, they're all listed here on the right. Mm-hmm. The harm test, the legality test, the precedent test, the respect test, golden rule test, and peer colleague test. Mm-hmm. And basically, you would put your each solution through at least three of those lenses mm-hmm. and ask yourself, for instance, if I don't say anything, is there any harm done? If I don't say anything um, and I were to tell someone that, that I really respect, how would they respond to me not saying anything? Mm. If I don't say anything, is there a, a legal challenge to this? Is there a legality issue with mm. it? That's one. Uh, and then I would go to the next one. If I say something to the instructor, is there, according to the golden rule, which, which is what I still think the choice was a good option if I were adversely affected by it. Mm. So if I were the one um, on the shoes on the other foot and I cheated, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, would this be an acceptable way to deal with it? So you would walk all three of your potential solutions through mm. those tests. Then you would act upon it and then um, make a decision and do what you have to do. Yeah. And then, importantly, you would reflect on it. And because if you ever deal with it again, you want to know how to adjust it to do it the right way the second time. Because mm-hmm. it's very possible you, you the solution you choose isn't necessarily the best solution or the solution, mm-hmm. or you know it's it's it would be hard or difficult to necessarily choose what's right you know in every instance. And yeah, I think I'm I'm a big uh, proponent of reflection that people get very caught up in the everyday, especially in grad school or mm-hmm. or work. You're working, you're trying to do all, a billion things, but to sit back and say, where am I? What am I doing? Mm-hmm. And uh, not because you have dementia, that is, you know, <laughs> <laughs> just like you know, <laughs> you know, where am I in life, and and, and you know, what can I do? Well, and, you know, and give you know, for an example, what if you didn't know it? And maybe even the instructor didn't know it, but um, the organization that he's training through says, you know, we really need to pull the tape. Um, we're doing an audit, and we just want to see what happened during your last day. And the instructor had no clue, mm. but through the taping that he didn't even know existed, mm. you find out, you know. And mm. then then he's like, well, wait a minute. Bill McCoy, who was... <laughs> Working, who was a professor at Clemson was sitting right there. He heard it and didn't say anything. Mm-hmm. You know, is then I need to reflect. Is that is that the right way I want to yeah. deal with this? Absolutely. You know, and I think one another layer to that because I think we just um, I actually applied this in, in presentation actually. So as as you go through all these t- solutions, you want to make sure that there's more uh, passes than fails. And that's what I'm trying to mean by that is that that uh, whatever test you pick, and I think in in practice, what helped the most was to have an apples to apples comparison. So like pick, for all the solutions, pick the same 
three tests, mm -hmm. and then it becomes easy to see, okay, this test failed in solution one, this passes in two, failed mm -hmm. in three, and there's more passes of tests than, than fails, you should go with solution two, whatever it might be. So exactly. I think that was a, a nice framework to, to have and gives you a sense of solitude and peace that whatever you did was an informed decision and, and there was thought put into it. So exactly. it's a really exactly. neat framework. Really, really enjoyed this. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. Faculty did a good job on it. Yeah. Oh, that's, that's good. And so uh, I guess as we're starting to wrap up here, I'm uh, curious, could you speak to uh, what is the Rutland Institute for Ethics here at Clemson and, and what kind of work uh, it does and, and how people, students, faculty and whatnot uh, can get involved uh, with this institute uh, here at Clemson? Sure. Um, what, what we aim to do at the Clemson, uh, at Clemson's Rutland Institute for Ethics, really we are about integrating good decision making or ethical considerations, ethical leadership, ethical decision making into everything that we do. That's about a real simple way for me to say it. We want every college to integrate it into their curriculum. Not just once, because good decision making, you have to remind people about it all the time. Yeah. So at the 100 level, 200 level, 300 level, 400 level, and, and so on and so forth, there needs to be an integration of every time you turn around, you're being reminded of making good decisions and being ethical leaders. Mm. Why do we have to remind people? Because in today's society, it's easy to forget. Mm. I am now literally, um, which is part of the reason that I got over here the time that I did tonight, is because I've been working on a presentation that I'm doing next week in Columbia to the Municipal Employees Association. Mm. Nice. Um, over 600 people. And they want to know um, about civility mm. and ethics. Oh, wow. And um, I was looking through some clips, because I was trying to find a clip that might work, of you know someone just going crazy. You know, they're all over the place. <laughs> um, it's a lot of it you can't really show in an open audience like that. But we live in a society now where people um, really don't, pay enough attention to um, ethical leadership and making good decisions. And they just feel like whatever they feel is what ought to be. Mm -hmm. And so we have a hard task, but it's a good one. And the reason that it's so important here at Clemson is that if you ever look at our mission statement, the Clemson mission statement clearly states things about learning how to be more ethical. Mm -hmm. They even use the word. I think they call it high seminary of learning. Yes. But if you keep reading down there, because it's, mm -hmm. it's, it's extra long, mm -hmm. but around the three quarters of the way down there, they want you to lead ethical lifestyle, mm -hmm. and they want you to make good decisions. And that's clearly stated in our mission statement. Mm -hmm. So that's why the, the Rutland Institute for Ethics is so important, because we 
you're here almost as a conscience and a reminder of being able to make good decisions. So we do that in a lot of ways. We do it through programming. Um, <clears throat> we have, as I mentioned, annual ethics day, which is um, in the fall of every year, usually in October. That's open to the entire campus. We have uh, something near and dear to my heart, uh, the TIDE conference, which happens in the spring. TIDE stands for uh, Tigers for Inclusion, Diversity, and Ethics. Man, you just keep making up these. <laughs> <laughs> it's like that. We could. I've been working around them so long. It just kind of rolls say, off the tongue. That, we should have a, count, a counter on this. We'll have to go back to a counter. Yeah. You know, is that the... 10th one, right? <laughs> they always spell something. Right? <laughs> it means something. Yeah. Um, the Tide Conference is near and dear to my heart because it was birthed um, in the middle of the pandemic and, and uh, was a result of all of the civil unrest of uh, uh, 2020. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so I was in a position where I knew I needed to write a statement um, about what was going on on our website, but I did not want to just write a statement. Mm-hmm. I wanted to put action behind it. Awesome. And the action that, uh, that resulted mm-hmm. was clearly the Tide Conference where the Rutland Institute for Ethics gives $1,000 to every academic college on campus to bring a speaker in to talk about et- the intersectionality of diversity and ethics as it pertains to their discipline. Mm-hmm. So they get to choose the speaker. We just give them the money to do it. Hmm. Um, so that's one of my one of my pride and joys. But we also have other programs. For instance, the uh, Ethics Scholars uh, program, where students who engage in um, co-curricular activities that deal with ethics, ethical leadership, and ethical decision making. Um, uh, can either earn a cord at graduation or a medallion if they go up another level and, and engage in more. Um, we have other activities and we, we have awards that we have, but everything we do is designed to push ethics mm-hmm. into what I call the community. So both the university and the community. Mm-hmm. And that was the original intent of what Bob Rutland, who gave the money to start, intended for us to do to affect change at the university level and even outwards. And let me just say this quickly, um, and we're beginning to do that. We're Good. Right now, as I'm talking, we have an assessment out there to figure out from business leaders what sort of um, program can we put together that would help you in, in your place of business uh, with greater um, uh, ethical leadership. We have, we're partnering with the Rotary Club internationally, Mm -hmm. and we are going to have our first camp to teach ethical, ethics and leadership on Clemson's campus this year. Our high school ethics case competition is involving students from as far away as Arizona. Wow. And Florida and Pennsylvania and Indiana. So we really are beginning to have more of an impact even across the nation. And that's what we intend to do. Very cool. I really like that. And, and so I guess uh, as we're wrapping up here, uh, do you have any final thoughts in terms of, you know, conversation of ethics, how it pertains to, you know, uh, as an individual? You know, you must, I, I don't know, do you feel a, a great burden of, 
responsibility because you're the the leader of ethics here at Clemson that you know that you know every second of your life outside you know personal and professional has to live up to you know a good I would feel like that I'd have an extra burden if people were like oh you know Scott you're the top you know big physics guy right you'd have to you know be you have to know all the answers right do you feel uh, this uh, and I guess if you have any close closing thoughts you know with regards to ethics and our whole conversation today uh, you know you just asked me a very interesting question. Um, the direct answer to it is, I don't think I feel a burden for it um, because everything that I teach, I try to make it natural to who I am as a person. I see. However, there are times there are times that it that I've had to even question myself. And a good example, and I think worthy of our discussion at the end here, me bringing it up, is one time when I lived in Illinois. I used to get my um, prescriptions uh, medication from uh, Target in the city I live, where um, I worked in Northern Illinois okay. University. And I went in, it was really, really cold that day. <laughs> it's a typical winter in Illinois, which yeah. is really, really cold. And so I went in to get my prescription and I was tired and I, I came back outside and somehow or another, I realized that they had not charged me enough money. Mm-hmm for the prescription. Mm. And I had to sit there in my car and think, do I really want to take this back in there? And part of me said, oh, well, there's no question about it. You know you need to. The other part of me was like, it's cold out here. I really <laughs> don't feel like getting out of the car. Yeah. Um, but, it, but it's not a dilemma, right? But it's, it's not, not a, a dilemma. dilemma. It's, it's not, not a, a dilemma. dilemma. <laughs> and so so what I, you, you know, what I did, I called and, and um, was able to resolve, you know, everything with them mm. sitting out in in the uh, parking lot, but that is the essence of what we're about—really mm. helping people make good decisions mm. and giving them the tool or the tools to be able to think methodically through true ethical dilemmas awesome. and even hard decisions. Yeah. Oh, thank you for sharing that. I think that's it's so helpful. And and for those who are listening, I think hopefully this starts a conversation about, like you said, like how can we incorporate this in our everyday lives, in our majors, in our schools, and maybe our businesses, whatever it might be. So we're thankful for the work that you do. And thank, thank you. you for your time as well. And this is, again, Breaking Style. This is Crawford. This is Scott, and I've had a fantastic time. Thanks for being on the show with us, Dr. McCoy. Thank you. Appreciate it.